0: Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of Capital Generation Partners, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions posed by our clients in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are go-anywhere investors, so in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world, from bricks and mortar, to portfolio derivatives in summary this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors do subscribe if that sounds up your street and you'll enjoy two episodes a month of talking capital so robert perhaps we should start with what's in the news uh bank of england held rates steady this month that did the uh, us fed by contrast to the ecb which 10 days or so ago increased rates What does this? What does this tell us? Is is this peak rates? Can we infer from the most recent Fed and Bank of England choices that actually the peak for rates in this cycle is now behind us, or or
1: where we are now? Um, Well, it was certainly a very busy week, so it wasn't just the Fed and Bank of England. About thirteen of the big central banks were all active, and there was a wide variety of different responses in terms of some were hiking. Some were on hold, but it was maybe a hawkish hold, or some were interpreted as a dovish hold. So it was it was quite an interesting period. And but I think you, you're right in a sense of we're certainly getting closer to that moment of of peak rates or the the end towards the end of the cycle. And we're sensing that because we're getting close to the point where we're starting to see signs of growth peaking and maybe coming down. Certainly, inflation is starting to come down or has been coming down across a number of economies. So you are getting to that moment where it's not a slam dunk, it's a far harder decision when you get to that turning point. But I think the interesting point was actually, although the central banks across the board were maybe gave slightly different responses, arguably there was sort of a a more united and uh, synchronised movement in rates across the world. And certainly we're seeing rates go up. So central banks might be um, indicating that they're getting close to the end of a hiking cycle, but the market narrative, is turning towards higher for longer so from the soft landing narrative that we talked about before um, actually either way the data whether data is stronger in the us in terms of growth or weaker in europe we are getting to the point where maybe we are, we're at the peak of a hiking cycle or close to it um, but the central banks are indicating that it's good you know rates will be kept higher for for longer and certainly in the fed they didn't hike rates but indicated that maybe there'd be another hike this year. And maybe the cuts next year might not be so maybe um, so sharp. And I think that's one thing people are interpreting is, are we going to get to the moment where rates go up and then they immediately go down again, as is often the case, because something breaks in the economy and they have to cut rates? Or are we going to be in for a period of sustained rates at maybe more normal levels, but kept higher for longer? So you might reach the top of the mountain, but I think we, John authors had that in his piece this week and people are talking about, it, is it the shape of a table mountain of a flat top or are we going to have one of these sharp declines? So I think that's really where the discussion is about. And, and that's quite an important discussion it has quite big impact for markets. But despite that, I think this move up in market rates is the biggest, most important thing happening at the moment. That really is um, a difficulty for, for, the, for the real economy because rates going up, financing costs going up, eventually will come to bear.
0: Yes, I, I think the analogy was, uh, is it a tabletop or is it a Matterhorn, um, which is very visual and, and easy to understand. But I guess the point you're making, Robert, is that uh, whilst central banks can and indeed do control uh, overnight interest rates uh, by their uh, their open market activities, generally speaking... Longer term rates, particularly those going out to 10 um, or so years, are more controlled by the market. Although in brackets, during the aftermath of the financial crisis, we have seen central banks try to control longer run interest rates. But what we're seeing at the moment is that those longer term interest rates in the round are going up uh, across the board. And that's the that's the higher for longer. Before we um, just come to look at that a little bit more, I wonder if I could just quickly step back and ask you, quickly to just unpick a little bit. We've contrasted uh, Bank of England and Fed uh, holding, albeit that the Fed one was perhaps a hawkish pause, uh, and the ECB raising rates. Can you just, uh, and then obviously there's the Bank of Japan, can you just quickly sort of disentangle what's going on in those four regions? Are, are we seeing a similar situation in all of those four, US, EU, UK, and Japan, or is there is there divergence? <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's slightly nuanced, but I would say that the higher for longer is at the short end as well as the long end. So I think it's affecting short-term rates, even two-year going up. And I think the important point, if we take the first region out of those, Japan, which I think is arguably a catalyst for the others, Japan does look somewhat different. So to the point about the 10-year, the central bank authorities and the, the Ministry of Finance are really controlling the uh, the 10-year rate in Japan. So the yield curve control has been a key component of what they've been doing. And that's been at the heart of the problem that uh, Japan has become the butt of the carry trade against the rest of the world with their rates a lot lower than than in the US and elsewhere albeit they're now starting to release upward pressure that you can go from half a percent up to 1%. And that in itself is a bit of a shock for the other parts of the world. So they are interlinked. So the yield curve control unleashing in Japan is forcing up, Um, from from capital flows, forcing up rates in the rest of the world. I think for Japan, the good news, maybe the whole question about inflation and inflation expectations is more positive for Japan than the rest of the world. Actually having a dose of inflation, inflation expectations coming back is good news. So Japan growth has looked a bit stronger. Inflation maybe coming back is is good news for for Japan. So arguably rates going up is not such a um, such an issue, such a problem. In fact, their problem at the moment, short term, is keeping rates low led to the pressure on their currency, the currency being too weak. So they're forced to intervene because of, of currency pressure. So I think that's the key concern within Japan. I think within Europe, if we take the, those next region, Europe's problem uh, is growth is already looking weak. So the recession is already look looking like it's hitting. The impact of the manufacturing recession is larger in Europe. The slowdown in China affects Europe more. So we're certainly seeing PMI numbers looking weak in, in Europe. And when we're looking at market expectations for next year, arguably Europe's looking a bit more stagflationary. Certainly market expectations of uh, um, inflation to remain relatively sticky um, and certainly higher than target and but for growth to be going down at the same time so that's the bit of the nasty um, situation europe is is stuck in uh, between the two and arguably the uk sits somewhere between the us and and europe and it, it does have a lot of difficulties and um, the, the problem of inflation has been even more sticky in the UK, some f- for, for normal reasons, some for regulatory reasons due to energy and some for some of the policy related re- uh, reasons linked to Brexit and issues of, of a lack of uh, workers in the labour market it, it forcing up sort of wage inflation. So I think UK faces a similar difficult mix. Um, Arguably, it's going to be hard to keep rate, raising rates into this slowing growth in the UK. But problem is inflation, while it remains sticky, rates will need to remain high for longer. I think the US growth has looked better in the US than the rest of the world. We, we've spoken about maybe more of the fiscal spending in the US um, keeping up consumption growth. But even there, I think there is that bit of a, um, a, a two-step mix and half of the, the data is point pointing to slowing growth. So there are signs of slowdown, even if some of the data, like the jobless claims data this week, was actually pretty strong. So until we see more weakness in the labor market and consumption, it's going to be difficult for the Fed to really start that um, rate reduction period. Um, so yes, there is divergence in growth. And clearly, China, which we didn't speak about, is in a much uh, more difficult position at the moment, slowing slowing more rapidly. So divergence between regions. But the problem is, I think interest rates, um, the real rate is um, an important sort of global financing cost, certainly US rates are really important. So there will be this interlinkage between between regions, certainly in the risk free rate. So I don't think that's going to be lost. But if we take one example, high yield spreads, Europe against US, to that point I said before, actually, European um, high yield spreads are, are pricing a bit more difficulty than the US so far. Even though the probability of recession is probably about the same for both regions, the recession looks closer on the horizon for Europe. Um, so we're seeing some pressure up in in, in high yields, um, lower quality spreads in Europe versus the US. So the market pricing of of some of the more risk assets is, is showing a bit more divergence. Even if this sort of rise in in the real rate, which is the important part, the the story this year, it's not been about inflation. Actually, the real rate is going up. And that will come to bear and put pressure on companies which have have, have overlevered too much during the the period of of low rates.
0: Let's stay with the with that increase in real rates, the reappearance of uh, an inflation-adjusted uh, meaningful positive return. What does that mean for the classic uh, non-yielding assets? And I'm thinking particularly of gold. Uh, but also of Bitcoin and I suppose crypto more generally, because these are, uh, you know, stores of wealth and value. But as we know, they ha- don't have a positive yield and arguably have a negative yield because, in the case certainly of gold, but also to some extent in the case of crypto, you have to pay for storage. So, what are we seeing happening in the in markets for those those non-yielding stores of value?
1: Yeah, I think. Interestingly, on gold somewhat, I think we're starting to see, which is maybe a sign of a higher inflation regime, a break of some of that traditional linkage between real rates and um, the price of gold. So traditionally, storage costs, certainly for large periods of time, when real rates go down, gold goes up and vice versa. So that's... That's the usual uh, relationship that one would see. And also, I should point to it, usually gold is a lot more volatile than than treasuries. What we've been seeing more recently is gold's been more stable. Um, Certainly, there's been a bit of a downward pressure this year, but nothing, a large amount, in fact, gold's become sort of becalmed. And so it's certainly not following real rates. And the volatility of gold, unusually, is lower than long-term treasuries at the moment. And that may be a sort of signal because in in markets where... Inflation risk is higher. Gold can become more of that store of value than, than bonds. So that's potentially what we're starting to see, which may be that signal of a higher inflation regime. I think the Bitcoin story is is a little bit different than, than gold. Certainly, the common threads can be seen by actually there have been some doubts people have had about the, the store of wealth of fiat currencies in general. Um, in higher inflation regimes, do you really want to, and particularly the dollar, the threats to the dollar from countries in in other parts of the world starting to use other currencies to settle their their trade, potentially, or on the back of some of the sanctions against Russia have been a bit of a catalyst and some of the rising geopolitical risk. So there has been a bit of a bid for uh, Bitcoin, but in many ways, Bitcoin, um, although it's got the long term, it, it can work as a store of value. It is quite a speculative asset. So we have to say it does follow the the trends, the cycles of of liquidity, which it certainly did over the Covid period and post-Covid bubble. So as things rallied, Bitcoin was rallying this year. And more recently, uh, we've seen a bit of a a slight um, pullback in prices, although nothing too much in the last couple of months when we've seen really some pressure in equities and some of the rising rates. So maybe it's starting to be affected by that overall environment. But I think really what one can think, it's hard to to draw complete parallels, but really if we do see tightening financial conditions and entering into recession, there will be pressure on Bitcoin. So that's going to be the linkage there. But I think on both of those, the longer term thought is, are we into a higher inflation regime? It might be disinflationary for now, But if those medium term inflationary pressures are there and the geopolitical threats um, between different trade blocks, there will be a bid for other stores of value, not just the um, sort of gold and Bitcoin, but actually in real assets, in equities, in real estate.
0: Moving from gold and Bitcoin to oil, which uh, is similarly negative yielding in the sense it needs to be stored, although it does clearly have a a purpose and use. We've seen oil prices hit 10 months. Highs this week. Uh, what's your sense, Robert, of the likely impact of those higher, recent higher prices in onto structural inflation? And I, I ask that because, as we know, uh, you know, energy is spectacularly volatile, and high prices cure high prices, and low prices cure low prices. And there's a sort of embedded sort of volatility in energy to do with the uh, lag in adjustments to capacity. So, so oil prices are up. Uh, it's in the headlines. Uh, is that going to feed into structural higher inflation, do you think? Or is it just going to we're going to see it just drop off again as has been the case for the last few years?
1: So I think, I think we could pull out a few a few things to do to do with oil. I think the first thing to say is um, if we're thinking about tightening financial conditions, so real rates going up potentially late in the cycle, Having higher oil prices is not good news in that it does pull money out of consumers' hands. It is a tightening of financial conditions. So uh, alongside looking at how the dollar reacts, how the 10-year US reacts, Oil price is really important, and we did see that even in the GFC, going into that period, high oil prices just before, um, as the economy was cresting, is, is a tax on consumers, reduces consumption, and then it can push the economy into into recession. So that I think at the headline is the risk. I think if we unpick it, why has it gone up more recently? Yes, there was stronger demand from the US, so there is a bit of element of demand, and actually demand in China, the import demand. Uh, was not as weak as it could have been. So China is clearly slowing, but actually there, there are goods that need to be refined. Um, so Chinese demand was not as weak as it might have been in the last couple of months. So demand overall was was pretty robust, but it was really on the supply side is why we've seen the prices go up a little bit. And that was because we're looking at really uh, the actions of Saudi Arabia and Russia are really looking to um, Titan supply. And I think that makes sense when we consider the bigger picture. So the bigger picture being we're pretty close to peak oil. And that's arguably the question at the moment. There's been a long debate the last 10 years, but it's come out from the IEA again recently. Are we in peak oil? Are we in peak fossil fuel demand over the, this coming period? And maybe we are. Um, so maybe demand's peaking. They've got a lot of assets which are under the ground, which they need to monetize. Um, their economies are pretty vulnerable to lower prices, so they need to put a floor below prices. And that's really what we've seen over the last year or so is uh, trying to protect their revenues and a bit more uh, discipline. In a sense, of discipline broke down in 2014, uh, uh, which is why prices went down to the very lo- lower levels, the more competitive levels. There was a big surge of um, supply coming from the US. But this time around, actually, a bit more disciplined. They're trying to put a floor below prices, maybe around $70. But that's also a reason why we maybe won't see it go too high, because they really want to optimize revenue. You don't want too high prices, because as you said, higher prices cure higher prices. they will be the hit to demand. And when we say how much stress there is, so my first point about stress on the consumer, the global economy is much more resilient to higher prices than it was in the past. So $90 of oil now is actually not that stressful to uh, consumer incomes and spending, particularly it's not nowhere near as um, comparable as going to 08 when we're talking about $150, Uh, you know, $90, $100 now is not that big of a a drag on overall global consumption. So I think at a headline level, we we shouldn't be overly concerned uh, where we are at the moment. Um, I think one other element of concern why prices are pushed up, I think the US have made a bit of a um, tactical or strategic error in the sense that they run down their reserves um, to the lowest levels for many decades. So that's a big mistake, particularly when really these geopolitical tensions are behind a lot of the um, the, the supply um, actions that that we've seen. So. Look, I I suppose shorter term, if the U.S. economy remains resilient and OPEC um, tries to reduce supply, there's potential to, for for prices to remain roughly where they are. But really, the and also supply overall, there isn't a great excess of supply. So that's what that's the vulnerability across oil and other commodities. The the supply demand imbalance is not actually that wide. The gap. So actually, a, b- a bit more demand, and suddenly prices could go up a lot higher. But having said that, if we are right about recession in the next 12 months, the direction of travel for oil prices in the end will be down once those recessionary forces come to bear. Um,
0: there are a couple of themes uh, that that come out of this, and I wonder if we could try to link them together, uh, <laughs> which I suppose is to – okay, so oil prices have gone up uh, uh, on a relatively short horizon, and you've talked, Robert, about the likely path of future prices and where the balance lies – uh, but if I take that and extend that more generally into commodities and not just energy, but I guess hydrocarbon energy, but sort of future non-hydrocarbon energy and other things, is there a case for saying that we're at the beginning of a commodity super cycle, keeping in mind that I think we're all now saying to ourselves that the uh, global commodity supply infrastructure is going to be less uh, efficient than it might otherwise have been because we probably know that there are going to be Two rival commodities infrastructures. There'll be one that will be serving sort of China and perhaps China's allies, and then one serving the Western Western allies. And I suppose then, what does that mean for longer term uh, growth and inflation? Uh, If we're at the start of a commodities super cycle, does that slightly embed uh, a somewhat stagflationary future where? You know, we pay for the transition we need to make in uh, the way we do things and security of supply chain by just accepting for a while that we're going to be less well off and we're going to move capital into into that with the expectation clearly then that the, you know the medium term this pays off and we're we're better off, but we end up with a sort of shorter term stagflationary environment. Is that is that plausible or is that just too contingent?
1: Um, I think you're right that these big. Forces, so the big force of deglobalization, or if we say geopolitical tensions between the US and China, potentially this um, bipolar, multipolar world emerging, which then leads also to uh, deglobalization and um, sort of nationalizing production. So, bringing onshoring production does make the economy, the global economy, less efficient and does. Increased demand for new sources of uh, of raw materials, so that that certainly is one of the factors um, that, that's going to push up commodity prices. I would say in the next economic upswing. So I still think we need to get through the recession. In that next upswing, there'll be an upward force for commodity prices. I think the second big force, as you you highlighted, really is thinking about this energy transition. And really, it's completely restructuring global economy for a different form of energy. I mean, the the whole point about the new forms of energy, we're going from fossil fuels to more renewable fuels. Uh, We're going to have a lot more electricity. Uh, So there'll be less energy need because you, you can be more efficient, but a lot more electricity need, needs for the infrastructure, needs all the raw materials for electric vehicles so there are a lot of uh, medium term forces of demand for some of those raw materials be they metals um, or others um so there's a, there's a bunch uh, there's a there's a big demand uh and also linked back to the geopolitical risk it's going to be hard to source the supply in friendly current uh, countries in the end so i think that's again another of the these these big issues uh that we have so i think There certainly is uh, the case for, and and we're going into the period where there's been underspending on energy and other um, supply of commodities. So the natural commodity super cycle and then bust and then super cycle again, we are in, look like we're in for a period which would be buoyant for commodity prices. So I I agree with it during the next cycle. Um, And that could last for a number of years. I think where I get slightly optimistic and where it's pretty hard, so I do think a lot of forces are inflationary in the medium term. That's certainly our view that the market is mispricing that and you need to be ready for your portfolios to adjust for that, that type of environment. The big thing that's out there, I suppose, is human ingenuity, innovation does trump in the end. So I've got no doubt, actually, that in the long run, We're in for a period of major abundance across lots of uh, inputs, including energy. I think we will get to a period of abundant energy where it becomes, uh, it's it's almost a costless input that we'll have in our future, which I think is a great future for mankind. And when we look at those big forces like automation, AI, it's not going to come to bear immediately. There is a bit of a, a change, but this is a big wave. And this wave of innovation could be very disinflationary and will be good for productivity growth in the end. So although most of the forces are on the side of higher inflation in the medium term, and I think that's what we're going to have to work our way through. Um, if we're looking at you know, many decades out in commodities, you've got to be aware that actually innovation wins out in the end against that um, commodity need. Uh, and certainly that's the case for energy uh, in the not too distant future. So I think that's why within portfolios, certainly protect against higher inflation over the next 10 years or so, but you should be building in um, exposure to those secular growth themes, which will benefit uh, from the answers to all these problems. So the problems may be inflationary, the answers will be de- deflationary, disinflationary, and technology innovation will be areas that you need to keep access to within your portfolio.
0: Well, maybe let's um, let's link these together a bit. You talked about uh, innovation, Robert, and we are, uh, we are actually optimists at CapGen, although we can see higher for longer and we can see energy prices uh, going higher. We are optimists about the future, and in particular, the importance of capital and what we in our industry do in fostering innovation, being part of the solution, helping us get to the place we, we need to get to. But can you talk a little bit, Robert, about the, the intersection of innovation and interest rates does the higher for longer conclusion mean that there's going to be a sort of like a break on innovation and we have to sort of say oh my goodness you know for the next two or threes we can't innovate because interest rates are too high what what's your sense of of the relationship between the two if at all
1: yeah i think actually higher rates is not a bad thing for innovation at all when you look at innovation it really is making groundbreaking changes um, to growth. It's not reliant on lower rates. In fact, having a higher cost of capital is a good thing for the economy overall. It just means there's a higher bar, good ideas will still get capital where they, where they need it. But you get rid of actually the financial engineering, the keeping alive zombie businesses, which we've seen in the last 10 years, the economy becomes more efficient. So in many ways, actually, higher rates is not a, not a problem for innovation innovation finds the solution in the end. Now, it may need to be financed in a different way. Um, you may need more equity financing, less debt, but it will get there in the end. And I think also when we link it to AI and some of the new newer businesses that are really gonna be innovative in this new wave, arguably, they're gonna need less capital to actually get on board. And that's the beauty of, of uh, AI. You make people more productive, that will force up um, the real cost of capital, Higher, higher real growth, higher real cost of capital, we should see higher rates. Um, but the businesses that are founded will need less capital to, to get on board. You'll need fewer software engineers to create your new um, company. You'll need one or two who are then hyper productive. Um, so I don't think it will be be a problem. Now, clearly at the moment, the IPO market, although we've seen three or four IPOs in the last week, um, so it looks like we can see a bit of life Arguably, that's actually still showing some of the after effects of the bubble we've had. So we've still got to work our way through the bubble in terms of financing financing growth in the venture capital world. So just a couple of those you, you would look at. You can see that the, the, the actual IPO is, it, is a lot lower than uh, the last three or four financing rounds. So people who are financing that late stage venture, they're having to take a bath, they're having to take a haircut. The people that seeded those businesses have done extremely well, uh, but we've still got a lot of those expensive companies that really need to face reality. And that's what we're still working our way through over the next couple of years. And higher rates just speeds up that process in many ways. Ways. So I think I don't think it's going to be a problem. Uh, we will get the innovation we need in the end. Actually, if you bring things to a head, it forces p- the innovation to happen quicker. So in many ways, I think it's it's better. The downside, obviously, is there can be big disruption and uh, unemployment, which which causes its own problems. So we need to make sure we can. Work the economy through that situation and and not lead to sort of scarring and uh, permanent unemployment. That's a bit of an issue. So that's what policymakers really need to watch for. But overall, higher rates and innovation, I think, can can um, rise together hand in hand uh, if we get things right.
0: I think we might have talked last time about uh, a future opportunity or an opportunity now in secondary venture capital, but I won't take us down that path. I wanted to talk uh, to stay on the innovation and growth and making a better future theme. And just ask you, Robert, a little bit to unpick the different strands of that, because I guess, you know, we've talked a lot here over the weeks and months about what this year's equity rally has really looked like, which is a a lot of price movement in a small number of stocks, which uh, in total, as they become larger shares of the index, is pulling the index up. We're beginning, well, we're, we're beginning to see that uh, that broadening out, but it was very very focused, wasn't it, on the on the AI related names? Can you talk a little bit about what's happening in other growth areas? I'm thinking particularly as we were just talking about about renewables, so energy, uh, technology, uh, and also the biotech and uh, healthcare and health sciences uh, sector.
1: Yeah, I I clearly it's been a very um narrow market for much of the year. I think that broadening out, which was we were we were pleased to see a bit because it pointed to positive growth has really unwound in the last six weeks or so. And when we look at the S P the S P seven versus the four ninety-three, basically the four ninety-three are flat or you know, up a few percentage points, uh, while the, the seven are up about fifty percent for the year. So it's a big, big difference. That fifty percent we should remember is making back the losses they had the year before. So that, uh, that that is to be put there, but that's what's happened. So it has been a narrow AI focused market. Even if we look at the equal weight MSCI all country world, it was up around 3% at the end of the month. So it wasn't, um, you know, it hasn't been a big year for for most other stocks. Now clearly some stocks have been up on, even within the growth sectors, but those other growth sectors have not been done as, done as well. So even in a sort of more buoyant environment, um, a lot of companies are off a long way. Um, if we look at renewable energies, that's had a particularly tough time. Again, biotech, not. there's been some bounce back. It's been a bit more idiosyncratic, but overall, there's still pressure within, uh, with it, within the sector. So it's not been a broad-based rally. It has been quite focused AI, which may be the natural thing, but I think the problem, and this is why a big question you have to say is, will all the growth and benefit go to those big platform companies? And so far, that's been the case a lot. I mean, in the last uh, several years, the, the earnings have been there and that's been been the case. But that needn't always be the case, particularly if the, the growth is it needs less capital. If it's less capital demanding and businesses can actually create new ideas, which potentially we're going to see, actually, um, so far, the large language models we need a lot of investment. And the uh, and so the big companies are one in that situation. Actually, going to an environment where you need less investment is not about the long long tail. Actually, and you don't have to get things perfectly right. So the models can rely on human interaction to improve as well, rather than you needing to train the models up. Going to this next phase of growth, it could be more uh, led towards newer companies. And in that case, again, you see this refreshing. The winners of the past don't necessarily win in the future. In fact, that's that's always been the other way around. Um, if we go back to 2000, of the top 20 companies in 2000, in the next 20 years, only one of them, Microsoft, actually managed to beat the S&P. So I think we've got to remember that when we see a market as as um, sort of bifurcated as it, as it is at the moment. So, uh, I suppose when we're, we're saying about those growth areas, I think there'll be opportunity to add in each of those sectors. In, in, if we're looking at biotech, healthcare, even the, the tech AI, but it's not necessarily exactly at this moment across all of them equally. I think you could you can pick your spots, and imbe- but still invest in those growth trends over the coming decade.
0: Robert, thank you very much. Time is up. If I might finish with one uh, observation to, in a way, link together the three things we've talked about It is true that we are cautiously positioned at the moment, but, but, but we always, always, always strive to find opportunities and ideas and managers that will enable portfolios and our clients to make money. So yes, cautiously positioned, but always, always striving to find opportunity and to be part of that, that growth and innovation. So thank you for joining us and see you soon. You can subscribe to Talking Capital on all major platforms. Capital Generation Partners, LLP, is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and is registered as an investment advisor by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. This podcast and opinions expressed do not constitute investment advice and do not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or any other investment or product. Nothing said during this podcast should be construed as an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity. All information and opinions expressed herein are current as of publication and are subject to change without notice. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from Capital Generation Partners to the listener. Capital Generation Partners makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or of any of the information contained in this podcast. And any liability, therefore, including in respect to direct or indirect loss, is expressly disclaimed. Please note that the value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. This podcast may not be copied, reproduced, further distributed to any other person or published in whole or in part for any purpose. Further information, including our privacy statement, can be found on our website at www.capitalgenerationpartners.com.